Jude 24 and 25. Now to him. Now to him who is able. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Well, it appears to me that most Christians in America think far too simply about salvation. I mean, you say, what what do you mean about that? Well, you ask someone what it means to be saved, and he says, well, it means I'm forgiven of my sin. We wouldn't argue with that. Uh, It means I'm going to heaven when I die. We wouldn't argue with that. Uh, It means the Lord is with me, whatever comes my way. We wouldn't argue with that. I mean, all these things are absolutely true. They're right. They're good. They're part of that redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, we can think about the forgiveness of sins merely in terms of being relieved from the guilt that bugs me and drags me down instead of thinking deeply about how our sins have offended God. How our sins place us on a collision course with the wrath and judgment of God. Boy, we heard that last night in Matthew's talk. And the weightiness of the sacrifice uh, wrought from a foundation of divine love in Jesus Christ so that we might be forgiven. So we can think about forgiveness and think, well, I'm relieved here, but what did it cost? So what does it mean to be saved? Oh, Yes, I'm forgiven, but let me tell you how, how I was forgiven. Let me tell you what it costs. Let me tell you the weight. Or we can think about heaven as an escape from responsibility from our earthly troubles. I mean, haven't we heard many people uh, talk about that? Uh, and certainly, there's nothing wrong with thinking about, I want to be delivered from this fallen world. Bless God, we should be thinking about that kind of thing. But heaven can be thought about with that that corresponding concern to live like one who is a presently a citizen of heaven, a kingdom citizen. Heaven can be considered without the magnificent process of God's electing grace, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, the sustaining and keeping work of the Godhead, and the glorifying work inherent in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Unfortunately, sometimes I hear Christians, well-meaning Christians, and they, they talk about heaven as though Jesus is secondary in heaven. Oh, can't we get, get to heaven and see Uncle Charlie? For crying out loud, you won't care about Uncle Charlie then. I mean, you know what I mean. You're going to be wanting to see the face of Christ. So, we're, we're certainly thankful for the Lord being with us. And yet sometimes we treat that in very glib ways. We want, we want the Lord to be with us when we're in a jam. But how about the Lord being with us when we're just out with friends? We're glad that the Lord is with us when we're sick and we're down. But how about when we're facing temptation? So we think about, boy, I need the Lord. 
or challenges to obedience or trying to deal with the kids. And the Lord is too often thought of as some kind of emergency fire alarm. We're going to grab that and, and we need him to come at that point. But the rest of the time, you know, we got this. No, we don't. You see, this, this doxology at the end of Jude's epistle is correcting that kind of thinking. Now to him. Now to him. You see where he's been taking us? For all these previous 23 verses, he's taking us to this second part of the bookend. Now to him. He opens with the one who calls us, the one in whom we are beloved, the one who, uh, for whom we are kept. And now he says, now to him. And so what he's doing, he's helping us think more clearly, more precisely about what salvation means. And here, here's what I mean. For Jude, salvation in an ultimate sense is the, is the divinely given ability to stand before God in all of his glory and to do so with exuberant rejoicing. Here we are, sinners who shudder at the reality of our sin, who are overwhelmed as forgiven people when we think about the work of Christ and we think about all the divine work that's gone in, uh, into us being saved. And yet one day, uh, what is ultimate is that we're going to stand before him and we're going to see him as he is. But apart from that saving work of Christ, we can't stand before God. We can't see his glory. And we certainly will not have this kind of great joy, this exuberant rejoicing that Jude talks about. But when we begin to get this picture in our sight line, when we begin to think about what is ultimate, and, and uh, Chris, you were touching on this hope. I, I think that's one of the neglected areas in our thinking and in, in our whole process of sanctification. We are to be constantly living with a deep consciousness of the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. That affects everything. That's what Jude is doing. Because if, if we have this in our sight line that one day I'm going to be standing face to face before the Lord. And I'll see him in all of his glory and I will be filled with joy like I cannot even begin to imagine right now. Then that affects the way we deal with temptation to sin. It affects the way we talk to our wives and to our children and to our co-workers uh, it affects the way uh, that uh, we give ourselves in serving others. It affects the way that we speak to other people about the gospel. It transforms our attitude about everything that's going on around us. And this seems to be, I think, why Jude ends this little sermonic epistle with a doxology. Because he wants to glory in the Lord. And simultaneously, he wants to lift our thinking above the depressing realities of life around us so that we learn to live in what is ultimate in Christ. That's where he's taking us. Here, here's my theme. Focus on the ultimate in Christ. As we focus on the ultimate in Christ, that affects our actions in the present. And so 
we're, we're getting this forward view. We're, we're, we're li- learning to live in the hope that is in Christ. We're thinking about what is ultimate, and that affects everything that's going on in the present. Um, we're, we're not, you know, so saying goes, uh, you know, so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. No, we're to be very heavenly minded. I mean, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. How in the world do we deal with that? I mean, why does Paul bring that up? So that we learn to live in the hope that is ours in Christ, and that affects everything that's going on around us. And we, that as we live in this ultimate, we learn to see clearly to build up one another in the faith, to pray in the Holy Spirit, to keep ourselves in the love of God, to set our hope on future mercies in Christ, to show mercy to others through the gospel, all that happens when we are buoyed by this sense of the ultimate that is in Christ. Now, how does this work out? Well, I'm going to look at it by three considerations. First, we want to think about why does Jude end with a doxology? Uh, Second, we want to see why it is necessary for the Lord to keep us from stumbling. And third, what makes him able to keep us from stumbling? So first, why a doxology? Well, a doxology differs from a benediction. The doxology, doxa, glory, it is a glorying in the Lord, it is an expression of praise. Uh, it, it is far more Godward than a benediction. A benediction is more manward. It is a declaration of blessing from the Lord. And we find both of those in the epistles, and both of them are great. We love them. We're thankful for them. Paul often closed his epistles with benedictions. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, 1 Corinthians 16. The grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you, 2 Corinthians 13. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren, Galatians 6. And yet that same apostle utilizes uh, doxologies. Uh, Romans uh, chapter um, 16, verses 25 to 27. Now to him, same kind of phrase, now to him, you see what he's doing. He writes the epistle of the Romans and says, okay, brethren, let's just take that look. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. I mean, after writing Romans, he just had to praise the Lord, didn't he? Yeah, here's this Godward look. He's keeping his focus. Same thing in Ephesians, except he does it right in the middle of Ephesians, uh, chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And in a sense, Paul combines something of this glorying of the Lord and the pronouncement of blessing upon God's people 
in the same way the writer of Hebrews does, Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Now, they keep coming back to now. You see, you see what these biblical writers are doing. They're pulling us in. Stop now. Uh, the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. So Jesus is not doing anything unusual. He's, he's following the pattern of other New Testament writers, and it fits in quite well with this sermonic letter. Uh, we, we could call this epistle a, a mini-sermon or a, hom, uh, a homily or as my, uh, w- one of my friends and I called it, homily and grits. You know, we're, we're, we're just getting right down to the basics of it because the whole structure and movement aims to expound what it means to earnestly contend for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. And then he just takes us to glory. And other than identifying himself right at the beginning uh, and, and then identifying his recipients as the called beloved of the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, there's no personal touch in this letter. I mean, personally, he shows the problems going on, but there's, there's no personal greeting. There's no names of friends as was so common in, in Paul's epistles. He just preaches and he ends with exaltation of praise to the Lord. That's not a bad pattern for our preaching, is it? Just preach the gospel and glory in the Lord and leave it at that. Well, what does this doxology do? It readjusts our minds that have been dimmed by the influences around us. In this case, the influences of the false teachers. These people have been affected by that. I mean, they they had been uh, pounded by these false teachers. And so he takes this this doxology, this expression of praise and glorying in the Lord, and it readjusts their thinking so that the church remembers that they worship the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, not the imaginative, uh, diminutive gods of these false teachers. And so what Jude does, he turns the minds and hearts of his readers to praise what our God through Jesus Christ has done and will do in all the redeemed. It's not over. He's still working. Now, if you think about what was happening among them, the the false teachers were hidden reefs in their love feasts. One could become very sobered and even despondent about the moral decline going on in that case. And brothers, when we look around in the the church in our day and we think about the the issues going on, we can get despondent. I mean, it, it doesn't take long when we see so many, I mean, and it's being charitable, just calling them unhealthy churches. Uh, frankly, I think we see so many buildings that have the name church on it, But they're not churches because Christ is not central in them. The word of God is not being preached. There is not the proclamation of the word. There's not the right use of the ordinances. Uh, I mean, there's no reason to even call them a church. I kind of got tickled at at one of my pastors. He was referring to uh, a church in our area the other day. 
And he wouldn't even call them a church because he said, they don't preach the word. And I thought, okay, I agree with you. He wouldn't even use the word church. He didn't want to defame that use of the word uh, church. And so what Jude is doing, he's turning the minds and hearts of his readers to praise what God will do and is doing. And even though all these things are going on around them, he uses this doxology to show the church that the atmosphere of our gatherings should be that of exuberant praise and joy in the Lord. For he's the one that makes his people stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Or as I think maybe better translated, exuberant joy, extreme joy. So we need this doxology as well. We need this truth from God to lift our heads above the present day where sometimes we feel swallowed up with the, the, the difficulties around us so that we feast on what is ultimate and we learn to live in him who is ultimate and in the promises that he has given to us that are ultimate. Let our sight be affected so that we don't live discouraged and gloomy, but we see what the Lord is doing. One, one of my friends, Max Stiles, has been all over the world. He lived in UAE for a long time, pastored in, um, in Iraq um, in some hard times uh, there. And I've never been around Mac when he's not just filled with joy, just exuberant all the time. And, and I think a huge part of it is this very thing. He's got his eyes set. And brothers, we've had to learn to get our eyes set. Look, look, let me just say, as an older guy who knows that my time is short, um, I don't know how short, but it's, it's, you know, it's definitely been shortened uh, over the years. Uh, when I was younger, I didn't think a whole lot about hope. I, I kind of laid it aside. Well, the Lord chasing me over that. And um, it, it, one of the fascinating gifts from the Lord, I, I started getting this burden to think on the hope of the Lord. And so I started studying. I did a sabbatical, a couple of sabbatical periods and just studied on hope uh, and thought about it. And then I got a really bad cancer diagnosis in 2018. I thought, ah, that's why I'm learning to live in hope. So, you know, not, not on my physical condition, no. But setting my hope on things that matter, things that are ultimate. Uh, let's don't be so short-sighted that we just think about what's going on now. But now, stop and look ahead. But now, look at the one who keeps you from stumbling. Well, the second thing, why keep us from stumbling? He gives us a doxology. He's, he's reorienting our thinking. But, but, but now, why keep us from stumbling? Well, the, the framework begins with that decisive now in order to shake our attention from our abilities and from our difficulties and from our perplexities. Now to him who is able to keep you, it's a plural you, unfortunately, we don't see that in our translations, do we? But it's there, he's talking about the gathered body of the local church. So this is an encouragement to the church. Now who, to him who's able to keep 
you, y'all, that would have been a better translation, actually. <laughs> now to him is able to keep y'all from stumbling and to make y'all stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. So let's unpack this in three facets. First is our propensity is to stumble. Our propensity is to stumble. The only reason he brings up stumbling, this idea that has to do with moral stumbling, as in the case of the antinomians, those lawless-minded people, uh, those false believers among them, the only reason he brings it up is because we tend to stumble. That is our propensity. I mean, some of these believers, though, were, uh, were growing anxious about their own souls because they saw some people that they loved and respected that stumbled. You've been there, haven't you? You felt that same kind of angst. Uh, they, they fretted, you know, is the same kind of thing going to happen to me? And so what Jude is doing through this doxology is giving an assurance that where there is true faith in Christ, it is the Lord that keeps you from stumbling. Now, we may not want to admit it. We may think of ourselves as unusually resolute, sort of like a Peter. I got this. You know, we're steady. We're capable of withstanding anything. We're uh, a man's man. Brothers, we need to get over that. Because... All of us are capable of committing any sin and turning away from the Lord. We're capable. And we need to see the reason we stand is not because we've matured so much. It's because the Lord keeps us. And that way, we don't get arrogant about it. We keep coming humbly back and thanking Him for its keeping power. Well, Jude understood this reality, and he, he knew about Judas's fall. He knew about Peter's denial. He knew about Thomas's doubting. And he knew that some of those who were shocked by this warning description of false believers among them in verses 5 through 19 feared that they would succumb to this same kind of antinomian lure. And so they needed assurance that that would not happen. I mean, d does that kind of thing not happen to us along the way when we see someone who's a supposedly a cherished brother, supposedly fallen into heresy or into some kind of doctrinal or moral deviations? And generally, the doctrinal and moral deviations go together. They go hand in glove. Uh, the, the doctrinal deviation happens in order to accommodate the moral deviation. That's been my observation. You probably would agree with me on that. I mean, does it not sometimes feel like an arrow striking our souls when we see these kinds of things? And in those times, we come face to face with our own weaknesses, and we should. Instead of pointing our finger, we need to point back and go, how about you? What's going to keep you from stumbling? What's going to keep you from going that way? It's the grace of God. It's not because you're so good. It's the grace of God. You have the same propensity. It's the grace of God. I, I remember I was, um, I was preaching through uh, 2 Samuel. And, you know, that uh, 
monumental chapter. You know, you got the great Second Samuel 7, God's promises to David that we're still living in, in Christ. Then you get to chapter 11, and you got the Bathsheba incident. But I was preaching through that, and right around that same time, a guy that I absolutely loved, to me, he was an extraordinary preacher, had a massive moral failure. And, and so it, as I was thinking, okay, Lord, how, how do I wrestle through this? And, and so I kept thinking, remember David. Remember David. You know, when you think you're strong. And then I inserted this guy's name for my own soul. Remember him. Remember the propensity. Remember what happened in David. You've got to learn to live in the grace of God. You've got to guard your heart. You've got to practice the, the, that passage. I mean, you've you got to keep living in the love of God. Uh, You've you got to keep building up in the faith. You've got to keep praying in the Holy Spirit. Uh, You've got to maintain this kind of, of persevering faith. And that, that was one thing that has served me, and this was many, many years ago, and I, I will still occasionally think, remember and insert that guy's name. That can be you. Notice what Jude doesn't do. He doesn't say, brothers, sisters, you can do it. You're strong enough to bear up. You're strong enough to keep yourselves in this mess. He knew that would not work because that is not true. Now, some of our people don't like it when we tell them they are weak. It's only because they do not know themselves. But we got to keep telling them that so that they see that and they understand it. I mean, he was not a cheerleader. He was a gospel truth teller. And Paul understood the same thing. I mean, think about when he described the war going on within himself. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? That was Paul. Thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, all of us have stumbled in, in different ways. We, we have friends, maybe close friends, who've stumbled in ways that stunned us. Um, Tommy and I were talking last night about uh, some, some of our classmates. When we were students in New Orleans Seminary, good friends, I mean, wonderful guys that bombed. Bombed. Did Tommy and I stand because we were better than them? Nope. Nope. It's the grace of God. It's that keeping power of Christ. Uh, and so, you know, we, we think about what, you know, this, this thing of stumbling and, uh, and th- those who turn, and we know that the Lord is holy and righteous. We don't take that antinomian approach to salvation, that license to sin for, as Romans 6 uh, it, it affirms to us, you know, how can we who died to sin continue to live in it? How can we do that? Paul is saying, no, you can't do that. God forbid. You, you can't do that. And yet we look at our lives. We still struggle with sin. I mean, I've been a believer for over 50 years and I'm thinking, and I still struggle with sin. I still get, you know, pummeled. I still find myself uh, failing and sinning against the Lord. So how will we ever be able to stand before a holy, righteous God? 
And I, I think that should sober us. Unless the Lord keeps us from stumbling, we will stumble. But he keeps those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. The second thing we see, not only our propensity to stumble, but the second thing we see is our God is able. Our God is able. And so Jude begins with this ability of the Lord, not with our ability. Now to the one, and this is why I translate it, now to the one who himself is always able to keep you from stumbling. He is always able, and the, the emphasis in the Greek is upon the Lord's own ability and power to accomplish this feat. And he never falters. While we may struggle uh, at, uh, along the way as, as we sense our inability, what this doxology does, it turns our attention to the ability of the one who keeps us from stumbling. And the plural you is so important. This is where Jude was extraordinarily pastoral. He, he's reminding us, he's speaking to the whole church. He is able to keep the congregation from stumbling. It's not just you. It's that congregation, the strong and the weak, the mature, the immature, the joyful, the despondent, the steady, the struggling. Every congregation has an array of believers who run the gamut of spiritual maturity. And you can have a healthy congregation and you still have this. Uh, I mean, we're at different stages of life. We have different kinds of things affecting us. Don't, don't get the idea that, man, if I just get to the point where our congregation is healthy, we're not going to have any this junk. No, you're going to still have the junk. And you're part of the junk. And, and you have to keep depending on the Lord. And the Lord is able to keep every single one regardless of how weak and pathetic from stumbling. So the term that he uses here is uh, to, to keep. It's the same one used by Jesus in John 17, 12. He prayed to the Father on behalf of his disciples. And he said, while I was with them, I was keeping them. Different word here. I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And here's the term. And I guarded them. Jesus guards us. Jesus guards us and I guarded them and not one of them perish, but the son of perdition so that the scripture would be fulfilled. The word means to guard safely. So it's not guarding and failing. It is guarding with a sense of certainty. Paul uses the same term, 2 Thessalonians 3, 3. But the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. The same apostle used this as a confession. He was convinced, 2 Timothy 1.12, that the Lord is able to guard what I've entrusted to him uh, until that day. And so you've got this idea of keeping, guarding, protecting, conveyed in mind, that conveying to us. And so we have the resurrected Christ who conquered sin, who conquered death, who conquered Satan, guarding us. Uh, the one who ever lives to make intercession for us, guarding us. The one seated at the Father's right hand, that hand of power, guarding us, protecting us. That's the picture he's giving us. 
He stands guard over the redeemed, the one who in that bloody death at the cross presents us blameless before God's face. And we're, we're security conscious in our nation. Uh, I mean, Americans spend billions every year to protect our stuff. Uh, and yet, despite all that, no one can guarantee our material safety. I, I live in a, um, a community that unfortunately uh, seems to be giving in to so much of this stuff. Uh, I, my wife told me that there was a, 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 she saw on the news Jim Cantori was in Memphis earlier this week with the, all the snow and ice that we were having and his car got broken into while he was there. Uh, welcome to Memphis. Uh, <laughs> you know, d- don't leave anything in your car if you come to our fair city. Uh, make, make sure you, you take care of it. Well, we're conscious of that. But the Lord, I mean, we're, we have no guarantees, do we? But the Lord does guarantee that he will keep us from ultimate stumbling. Now, we may falter and we may fall flat on our face, but not finally and not ultimately. Not because of the strength that is inherent to us, but it's because of the Lord's ability to preserve us. Jesus assures us in John six thirty nine, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Brothers, let's live in this verse. I mean, none of those elected by the Father, redeemed by Christ, united to his body, sealed by the Holy Spirit, will slip through the cracks. Thanks be to God. Third, he keeps us to make us stand blameless before him with exuberant joy. And so there's that propensity to stumble. And yet there's that certainty that the Lord is the one who is able. And then third, he keeps us to make us stand blameless before him with exuberant joy. Now, we could view this negatively, that he keeps us from stumbling. But his keeping power is not simply to deliver us from the edge of the cliff where we would fall into the eternal abyss. He does that. But he doesn't keep us from stumbling so that we will be passive and morose and uninterested. He keeps us to bring us to great joy. The Lord has ultimate joy as his interest. And he wants us to share in that ultimate joy. And so positively, we see in this text that he does his work in us so that he might bring us into this ultimate experience of joy. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Now let's, let's kind of work through that a little bit. So what is ultimate for man who's been created in God's image? Is it have a good career? Is it have a great ministry? Is it to have a wonderful retirement? Is it to do, have all kinds of uh, accomplishments? Is it to finish and people say, that was a good man? That was a good man. Well, Moses gives us an idea of what is ultimate. I mean, think about Moses. There were few have seen and experienced what Moses saw and experienced. He was born as a Jewish boy, destined to be killed. 
And by God's providence, Moses became the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, rose in the ranks of, of Egypt. After fleeing for his life, he makes his way to the Sinai Peninsula. He's herding his father-in-law's sheep and he sees this burning bush and it's not consumed. And then God reveals himself to Moses out of that burning bush. And God himself spoke to Moses. And then he goes to Egypt. He delivers Israel from bondage. He becomes the human instrument for 10 devastating plagues being declared on Egypt. The Egyptian nation feared Moses. Moses led the Israelites to the Red Sea. He stretched out his hand with that rod. The sea parted. The Israelites crossed it on dry ground. The Egyptians followed. Moses pulled his arm back and stretched out his hand and the waters annihilated all of them. He single-handedly, by the grace of God, led a nation of maybe as many as three million people out of Egypt. He received the law from God. He held in his hands tablets of stone written by the finger of God, we're told in the word. Everyone feared him. Everyone admired him. In answer to his prayers, the Lord gave food and water to people in the wilderness. He lifted his arms in battle with the Amalekites and Israel prevailed. He spoke judgment to Korah and his co-conspirators and the earth opened and swallowed up. So what was ultimate with Moses? I don't think any of us have, have a resume like that, do we? It wasn't the power. It wasn't the miracles. It wasn't the admiration by the nations. It wasn't the fear by other nations. The ultimate is found in Exodus thirty-three, eighteen. I pray you, show me your glory. Think about all that Moses experienced and saw. He said, that's nothing. Show me your glory. The Lord told him, Exodus 33, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. And yet as a concession and a gift to Moses, the Lord passed by him in his goodness. And Moses gazed upon God's back, but not upon his face. For Moses, the ultimate for a human being was seeing God face to face and living to tell about it. And by asking to see God's glory, Moses was really asking, I want to see you, God, as you are. Because the idea of glory, this kabod, this heaviness of God, and his face are equivalents in Moses' discussion with the Lord. Glory is who God is in his very essence in being. Now think about what Judas doing. He doesn't, the Lord doesn't only keep us from stumbling, but he also makes us stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. I'm convinced that Jude had Exodus 33 in mind in this doxology. For what Moses considered ultimate, God has promised to us. To stand before the face of his glory implies the ultimate effect of Jesus Christ's saving work and that power of the cross and the effectiveness of his justifying, sanctifying work is he brings us into his presence. This uh, compound uh, word in the presence of conveys before the face of. And it seems that uh, 
this overly strengthened preposition that Jude uses is taking us back to Moses and this ultimate glory of seeing God face to face. And yet no one can see God and live. That's what God said. Except, except when the Lord who keeps you from stumbling brings you into his presence blameless with great joy. And so Jude moves to sacrificial kind of language. This word blameless. So the sacrifice is offered. There's no defects in it. And, it's, and then it is acceptable to the Lord. And so you've you got this sense of being accepted. But we look at our track record. We think about our sins. We think about our faults. And we think about you know, the, the question, who, shall, uh, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. And our hearts ache because we take a look at our hands and we look at ourselves in the mirror. And we think about the impure hearts that cling to these weak bodies. And yet the surety is given that he is the one who makes you stand in the presence of his glory. Stand, not grovel. I mean, think about the Lord appearing to Isaiah. He didn't say, hey. Man, it's good to see you. No, he didn't do that. He fell flat. Same thing with, with Ezekiel. He fell flat on his face. But to stand blameless is only in Christ. I mean, that work of Christ on our behalf, where he stood before the judgment of God for us, and he gave us his righteousness so that we might stand blameless before the face of God. Do we have any room to boast? I mean, it's all to him, isn't it? I mean, one would think that standing before the glory of God would be the most fearful thing imaginable in the universe. And that would be the case apart from the work of Christ. And yet Jude says, no, that's ultimate. That's what these redeemed sons of Adam are experiencing, standing before the glorious face of God, with great joy. It's the same word that was used to describe John the Baptist in the womb of his mom, Elizabeth, when he heard the sound of Mary's voice. He leaped with joy. It's that same gladness that new believers at Pentecost experience. It is that oil of gladness that Hebrews 1.9 describes Jesus being anointed with before God. Great joy, exuberant joy. The work of Jesus Christ in saving and keeping brings his people to glory with exuberant rejoicing. And meanwhile, we just learn to trust the Lord in his providence being unfolded, to walk obediently, to, to worship passionately, to serve gladly. And this joy begins to bubble up in us. But all we're doing is catching glimpses. I've had extraordinary experiences of joy. Extraordinary. But it's just, it's just a little mercy drop. I mean, think, think about that. The, the day is coming where we stand blameless before the Lord with 
joy inexpressible and full of glory. And Jesus' redemptive work at the cross and in the resurrection comes to full fruition in the presence of God as we experience unhindered joy. And his death and resurrection makes that certain. And that is the future hope that we're to see to strengthen us in the present. A few years ago, before I retired from my pastorate, I was on the phone one night with the oldest member of our church. His health was failing. His mind was starting to slope a little bit. But he loved the Lord. He loved our church. He loved this pastor. Prayed for me. He was a wonderful brother. We talked about eternal matters. Um, and I knew his time was, you know, was going to be short. And we, we talked about the redemptive work of Christ. And, and that, that was common for us in our conversations. And I got off the phone and I just started sobbing. And that, that was not normal. I, I don't usually get on the phone and start sobbing. But I was sobbing uncontrollably. And my wife wondered, what is happening to my husband? And, and I, would, I, would, I would, you know, say, you know, everything fine. I was trying to give her indication. I, I wasn't losing it. Uh, you know, there wasn't something horrible that happened. And finally, when I regained my composure, I told her, I finally realized after all these years of, of pastoring, what my ministry is. It's getting people ready to see the Lord face to face and experience that inexpressible joy. That's what you're doing as a pastor. How, do we, how well do we point people to Christ? Not to ourselves, not to our leadership, not to our vision for the church. How well do we point people to seeing Christ as ultimate. Well, the last thing in this text, what makes him able to keep us from stumbling? Well, the propensity for every person is to, to stumble. How are we assured that the Lord is able to keep us from stumbling? When Jude says in verse 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. So first, he alone is God. Jude's audience have been listening to some false gods or caricatures of the true God. But he said, no, he is the only God. That is the theme echoed throughout scripture. Uh, you, you, you see those traces of God's revelation of himself as triune in the Old Testament. And then you come to the New Testament and you see that fully the only God does not suddenly become three gods, but he is one God. As I was telling my Muslim friend on the plane uh, a couple of days ago, he is one God who's revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he is this one God who creates and governs and sustains, and he's more than able to keep us from stumbling and to present us before his presence, blameless with great joy. And yet the problem of God's justice in our sinfulness comes to the forefront. I mean, how can he bypass his justice and welcome us? And so the second thing we see, he can only do it as Savior, the one who delivers. And so this infinite, eternal God stoops to save. He is the one that delivers us from the certainty of his wrath through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, bearing his judgment on our behalf. In the third place, Jude hastens to say that this saving work is effectively manifested through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
couple of writers pointed out how these words through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in the context of had is used is expressing the pre-existence and eternity of Christ. I mean, Jude's already told us about the severity of divine judgment. Uh, and Matthew was unpacking that last night that some out of the Exodus, angels who broke from their place, Sodom and Gomorrah, Cain, Balaam, Korah, they met with the wrath of God. So where is our boasting? Is it in superior morality? No. Uh, is it that we're indispensable to God? No. It is God our Savior through our Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest, mediating the way into his glorious presence and righteousness through his own life in our place at the cross so that the Father accepted the saving work of God the Son so that we who trust in him might stand blameless with great joy before him. And finally is the apex of honor that belongs to him, past, present, and future. And Jude captures something of the wonder of this great God who would save unworthy sinners to such a degree that he brings us into the blinding radiance of his glory, unscathed, fully enjoying just being with him as the ultimate in human experience. And this God is able to do it, Jude said, because to him be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Glory is his divine heaviness, the weightiness of his deity. Majesty describes his regal greatness with which he rules without peer. Dominion implies his strength and power to reign. Authority is his actual prerogatives as sovereign over all creation. And notice the emphasis is on Jesus Christ as Lord and the greatness and the certainty of the Lord's authority exercised over all creation and that assurance of his person by the effectiveness of his redemptive work gives us confidence that he keeps us from st stumbling to make us stand joyfully, blamelessly in his presence. And those divine traits are infinitely his. That's why what Jude means before all time and now and forever. And so he ends that doxology with a good hearty amen. Yes, yes, yes. Well, think about the regular pastoral challenge. Our people are living so much in this world that they seldom take a glance at eternity. They're fixed on their phone or their object, whatever the thing is. They're, they're, looking, at, they're looking at all the toys around instead of thinking about what Jesus has secured. And so Jude is helping us understand that a huge part of our pastoral aim is to turn our people's minds Godward and heavenward to be filled with that hope that is in Christ, to not be transfixed with their imaginations, but be transfixed on that which never rusts, fades, or tarnishes. I mean, what is ultimate for humanity is not the paltry, vanishing things that men put their hope in, but it's standing blameless with great joy before the face of God. Let that vision change the way you look at life. I mean, he doesn't 
barely drag us into the portals of glory. Instead, he makes you stand. A sinner, unworthy, and yet he showers his love on you. And he brings you holy and glorious into his exuberance, joy. And we see ultimate glory. There's a wonderful uh, book uh, written by uh, or edited by Grant Gordon called Wise Counsel, John Newton's Letters to John Ryland Jr. It's one of my favorite books, Wise Counsel, Banner Truth Book. And so one Sunday morning, 1775, John Newton wrote this letter to John Rollin Jr., a young man at the time. And I think it's a fitting summary for this doxology. You must not expect a long letter this morning. We are just going to court in hopes of seeing the king. For he has promised to meet us. We can say he is mindful of his promise, and yet it is not strange that though we are all in the same place and the king in the midst of us, it is but here and there that one, even of those who love him, can see him at once. However, in our turns, we are all favored with a glimpse of him and have had cause to say, how great is his goodness, how great is his beauty. We have the advantage of the Queen of Sheba, a more glorious object to behold, and not so far to go for the sight of it. If a transient glance exceeds all that the world can afford for a long continuance, what must it be to dwell with him? If a day in his courts is better than a thousand, what will eternity be in his presence? I hope the more you see, the more you love. The more you drink, the more you thirst. The more you do for him, the more you are ashamed you can do so little. And that the nearer you approach to your journey's end, the more your pace is quickened. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need from you that, that pull, that sight, that vision of being able to stand before you blameless with a joy that we can't even begin to fathom. We've just tasted it. But we know it would be far more glorious than anything that we have ever tasted on this side. And so we pray that you would use that truth, that vision of what is ahead to affect us that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for Jesus died for that purpose. That we might shepherd those you've entrusted to us and point them to that joy. That we might faithfully shepherd our own families to consider these eternal matters and to point them to that which is ultimate. We pray that you would enable us to be those who contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. For we know it is worth it, for we will see you as you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.